you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pastor Ronald, and uh, to all of you, I feel like I should be saying, um, it's great to be back. (laughs) I think the last time I was here was in early December um, to share with you, and I did have an opportunity in January, but due to commitments to be in British Columbia, I had to forego that, and uh, Pastor Ronald kindly filled that uh, with another person. I'm grateful to be back and to be able to share with you from John chapter 12, the passage of scripture that Pastor Ronald read for us this morning. I am going to go a little behind that or a little previous in the verses because uh, the, the the, the text that was presented and the theme, Jesus facing his cross, what I want us to discover is that he is a willing savior for us. That as Jesus faces his cross, we see in him that he is a willing Savior. Meaning he was not reluctant to obey the Father's will, and nor was he reluctant to be on that cross. As we sing in another current uh, song, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. When it was finished and he gave up the ghost and he died, it was in those moments that Jesus Christ became sin for us. He who knew no sin took on our burden. And he's facing that with that knowledge. We're going to see in this narrative that Jesus, in the early part of the chapter, uses what we would call foreshadowing, speaking what is going to come. And then we see that he marches resolutely towards that event. John chapter 11, the previous chapter, marks a shift in the account of the gospel. We've been seeing Jesus and his disciples up to this point were introduced to him as he who is the word, one with God and one what he is God, etc. In the first chapter that he came among us um, to give us grace and mercy. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus Christ, as we read in the first chapter. And then we see Jesus and his disciples first calling them to himself, and then moving around Israel, sharing the gospel to village after village, person after person. In chapter 11, there is a strong shift, because as Jesus has been moving around and he delays coming to see or answer the, the request from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus is incredibly sick and they're worried that he's going to die. Jesus delays knowing the glory the Father will receive and comes after his friend Lazarus has died. The miracle he performs, never before seen in Israel in that day, was that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the news of that spread so powerfully and such like fire through dry straw that Jesus could no longer move freely in the country. He was mobbed by crowds. This great prophet who was among them who even raised the dead. So he goes a little bit north of um, 
Jerusalem, maybe 13, 15 miles out. We're not exactly sure of the location, somewhere that's called Ephraim. We're not sure where that village is now, but he and his disciples stayed there for approximately five months. And then when the Passover feast was coming in Jerusalem, that great declaration of God setting us free from slavery and leading us into the promised land, both that is the story of Israel, but that is also the spiritual lesson that we learn that God brings us to himself and releases us from our bondage. So as the feast of Passover approaches, Jesus comes to the outskirts of Jerusalem, first in Bethany where he stays, it could be with uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It could be in Simon's home that we hear in another gospel. It could be elsewhere. But we do know that when he was there, one of the unusual things that happens is that Mary takes a very expensive ointment or spice that's usually used for embalming called nard or spikard. It comes from uh, plants in the foothills of the Himalayas. So it came at great expense and great travel and beautiful spice, smelled beautiful, but was used for embalming because what would it do? It would suppress the smell of a body that was decaying. What does Mary do? She opens that, she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she wipes them with her hair. Judas was incensed, and he says, this should have been sold because it would have fed so many people. Really, he was serving another purpose. He wanted to steal some of the money for himself. He was a thief. And Jesus says this remarkably. Here's the first foreshadowing. She has done this for my burial. Now, if you had heard that, you would have said, well, that's a weird thing to say. But you do realize in just a few days, Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's speaking that powerfully with knowledge Telling Mary he receives her kindness while he is alive and he praises her. The feast of Passover is approaching uh, and we discover that Jesus foreshadows his death as our savior through Mary's spontaneously anointing his feet. I wrote down head here in the next slide, but it's, it, he, she anoints his feet with this incredibly expensive perfume wipes them with her hair. What is she saying? I'm all in for you. I'm serving you. I love you. I know who you are. It was a declaration of faith and hope in Jesus. And that's the first clue we see in this chapter that Jesus knew these were his final days. The, the purpose for which he has come is looming powerfully in front of him. It's a day later that Jesus then enters Jerusalem, and you've already studied this passage, but I'm going to remind you of it. He comes into Jerusalem, and the crowds erupt. Now, I've been in the old city of Jerusalem and seen those streets, which are probably at times uh, half the size of this auditorium, and people milling through these stones, making their way into the city. And you can imagine as Jesus comes through one of the gates, the crowds recognize him, and what's remarkable is they start to use these two words in Hebrew, Yeshua'ana. Yesha Anna. Yesha means deliver us. And it's either a command to do it or it's a beseeching, please deliver us. And Anna means please help. We beg you. You put those two together and we have them, the English equivalent, Hosanna. Yesha Anna. 
Now, can you imagine as Jesus comes in and one of the crowd begins to take up this chant, Yash, Anna, Yasha, Anna, and then one by one they begin to gather. Have you seen that? Have you been in a stadium when the crowd begins to chant? Maybe it's a sport event, and they chant their name, and pretty soon it's one voice, everyone follows. It's as if they're all a single, united voice saying the same thing. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. Uh, just describing it, I start to feel the chill of that event, how powerful it is. And then you see people are tearing branches off the palms, and as Jesus is coming through, they're making a canopy, and they're waving them over him, and people are taking off their garments, and they're throwing them down in the street as he's coming riding this donkey into, Israel, into Jerusalem, which is a sign of a king who's about to be crowned, or the coronation. They are demanding that he be crowned their king. That's what's really going on. So you begin to understand now why the religious leaders are two things are boiling up in their hearts. The first is they're incredibly jealous. No one ever did anything like this for any of those, I can tell you. And here is this who, what, this upstart from Nazareth, as one of them said, does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? It's Galilee, right? It's uncouth, it's... It's unschooled, you know, it's, it's, they've got this accent. As soon as they speak, you know where they're from. They're Galileans. And what are they doing? They're, they're demanding he be king. They're adoring him in public. The throngs are there. The, over and over and over you're hearing, Yasha Anna, Yasha Anna. Powerful, right? How is it that Jesus is going to react to the adoration of this sudden eruption of what appears to be recognition? We know who you are. You are our Messiah. That is only true to a point. He is their version of the Messiah. He is not the version of the Messiah that he is. That's not what they want. They do not want a suffering Savior. What they want is a forever eternal powerhouse. One who will deliver them from enslavement to Rome. One who will put a chicken in every pot. You know what I'm saying. How politicians promise great things. They look at Jesus and say, if you are the Messiah and you've just raised Lazarus from the dead, there is nothing you can't do for us. But listen, it's prosperity at its worst. You're here to look after us. You, Jesus, are here to serve us in a sense of what it is I want. No change is needed, thank you very much. No transformation is required. No change of the status. We can just be who we are and enjoy your care. But we understand from the gospel that's preceded it that Jesus is going to be doing something else. So we discover that Jesus is the Savior that people misunderstand. They think they want him as king when we already know he has another path laid out ahead of him, one that includes his crucifixion and his death by that means. So here we see jealousy in the religious leaders. Here we see a crowd that is euphoric with the hope that they're possessing in a person who's going to disappoint them. And it seems that after Jesus was in the city, 
Some, at some point, this great fanfare you know, died down, and a group of Greeks who were in Jerusalem, we don't know if they were Hellenistic Greeks, or uh, what I mean, I should say Jewish Greeks, Hellenistic Jews, we just know that they were in Jerusalem at that point. We don't know that this was in the temple. They weren't breaking any rules. You could be free in the city. You just couldn't go beyond the Gentile court, if indeed they were Gentiles. We don't know. We simply know that they were there, and they obviously heard what was going on, and they wanted to meet with Jesus personally. Probably they had their own questions they wanted to ask. We don't know. Just that they came, and who did they come to? They came to Philip, who just happened to have a Greek name. I would do the same thing, wouldn't you? Like if I was looking for someone in Sri Lanka, I would look for someone with an English name. Uh, he was more likely able to help me. He would have at least that root and maybe that favor. So that's what he does, and he gets Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus and say, now they want a meeting. And Jesus doesn't respond the way we would think. It, it seems he actually ignores their request, because what it says in this passage of Scripture that he responds to them in verse 23, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, we've just had that, haven't we? We've just had the party. We just, we're ready to give the coronation. So when he says that, people might be, well, what, what's that all about? Didn't we sort of just join in? Do you want something more? But then he says something that's quite puzzling. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The one who serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, you listen to that, and you go, what on earth is Jesus saying? It's the first indication here of one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. When you surrender, you have victory. When you die, you have life. When you give it away, you keep it. You see, this makes sense in agriculture. All of you who like to garden, I, I imagine some of you like to garden. I've been to a few of you who have marvelous gardens. I've seen some of you who are very interested in plants as I am. And I've got to tell you that it makes perfect sense if you know anything about gardening. You put a seed in the ground, you wait for it to what? die to itself. It doesn't stay in its nice little shell. Puts a little root out and it grows into a plant and it produces what? Fruit. An abundance of more seeds. But the seed itself is gone. It's perished. Makes perfect sense in agriculture, but what is Jesus saying to us? That we ourselves must die if we are going to live. Well, we know that Jesus says in other places, you must die to self. You have to crucify the old life. You have to allow God to lead you in a process of transformation that is both immediate by your grace and long-going called sanctification, which means being washed and set aside and growing in maturity until the day of his return. Now, most of us would like to receive grace, thank you very much. It's a little bit of a struggle to be sanctified, don't you agree? To put off and put on, to put away the old life and carry the new, to be willing to serve instead of lording, uh, willing to follow instead of leading. So Jesus is saying that dying is the way to lasting life, just like a seed. He's really foreshadowing yet again what he's going to do. He's not only speaking to us, he's speaking about what he himself will do for us. 
There is no way any of us would ever be in the presence of God in heaven apart from the death of Jesus Christ for us. You can't earn your way. You can't promise your way. You can't undo the things of the past. And you and I, as strong as we might be from our wills, can never fulfill the promises we make when we say from this day onward, I will follow you. Really. Now, I'm not saying that you don't mean it. I'm not saying you shouldn't say it. I'm only saying if it was up to you, you couldn't keep it. Right? So if the grace of Jesus isn't great enough to conquer your weakness, it's of no value to you at all. If you don't need Jesus as much today as the first day you declared him as your Savior, you don't have much of a Savior. Because then what? Depends on you? He starts you off and you've got to do it all in your strength. We've been singing, no, if it wasn't grace that bought me, if it isn't grace that keeps me, if it isn't grace that renews me, if it isn't grace that transforms me, then I don't have what I need. That's the grace that we have. And that's what Jesus is foreshadowing in this passage. We discover that serving, surrendering to Jesus and the Father's will is the pathway to glory. Because Jesus says, if you serve me, my Father's going to what? Honor you. So what does it mean to serve him? The word is diakonao in Greek. I'm not trying to parade that knowledge. I'm simply saying it's where we get the word deacon from. And the deacon does what? Serves the church by taking the burdens of some tasks off the shoulders of those who teach and pray as their main work so that that can flourish and they're not, what, distracted by busy things that should be done and be done honorably to God but shouldn't be done by them because they'd be distracted from their primary duty. So what are we reading here when Jesus says, you need to serve me? Listen, he is not saying, if you serve me long enough, hard enough, far enough, then maybe I'll let you in. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a change of orientation that when you decide to follow Jesus and serve his priority and his purpose for which you were created and made, by the way, you then receive what? The praise of the Father that says, well done. That's what I wanted. Good for you. Go at it. Don't quit. It's an encouragement and an incentive that we're not in charge that Jesus is. We'll never be in charge. He always will be. He is the head of the church. We are simply his servants. And when we stand in his presence, you know what we should say to him? I only did what you told me. I could never earn grace. I could never earn favor. I could never earn a higher place. I'm just a servant. And I could never have served if you hadn't loved me first. So Jesus is talking about these paradoxes and he will soon be the suffering servant that lays down his life in obedience to the same father, the one he brings us into his family, who ad he adopts us by his grace. And yet he's speaking to us. It's not only his pathway, it's the pathway he's laying out for us. So on the heels of this teaching, Jesus pauses 
Because at this very moment, we come then to this passage of Scripture that I've been assigned. So all of that introduction, funny to say, here we are. Verse 23, right? Because as he's in this place, in this passage of Scripture, what he says is, it's a, it's a remarkable saying because in verse 27, now my heart is troubled. And what will I say? I said it was 23, but it's 27, of course. Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Rather, Father, glorify your name. Now, now he's saying several things that we need to discover. The first part is, I, I'm troubled. Now, for us in English, that's a weak word. This troubles me. Because what does it mean? Well, that means whatever you want it to mean, right? Kind of like nice. Or love. You know, I love puppies and ice cream and my wife. Hopefully not in that order, and hopefully not to the same degree. But you understand we have to explain some of these words. And we use the word nice. Oh, that's nice. What do we mean? I don't really like it. Good for you. Or nice, meaning, oh, great, or... Nice, meaning dismissive, okay, I've said something. You know, we can use these words, and troubled is sort of the same category. But if we go underneath the word, it actually means anxious, terrified, distressed. It means he knows what is coming, and the full weight of it is beginning to settle emotionally on him. We don't have a God who is doing this work in his son, and it doesn't matter. As if he doesn't feel it, as if there is no cost to this. It is so expensive, it's visiting on his mind. He knows not only is there a certain kind of death called crucifixion, but within that death, there is a degree of weight that you and I will never know. He is going to have the sin of the world upon him. He is going to have the just judgment of the Father on him. Why do you think when Jesus hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wretched call. Why? Because the Father turns his face away, seeing what the Son has become. It is so awful. And he knows it. This isn't hidden from him. God the Father hasn't sort of created a little bubble and says, like, you know, a mother does to her child when the doctor is going to come. Now it's just going to be a little bee sting. You'll hardly feel a thing. The kid feels it. Sometimes that's true. And sometimes you watch the horror on his face, which he realizes, I've lost forever all trust in my mother. She lied to me. This is awful. And screams and wails. You know what I'm saying. Different kids have different responses. My point is that God the Father did not hide from his son the full cost emotionally, physically, in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm that he would experience through death. All there. I am distressed, he says. What should I say? Father, 
And he said, but this is the very hour for which I've come. This is the very thing that I am supposed to do. Save me from this hour, but this is why I've come to this hour. And so what does he say quickly at the end? He says, Father, not rescue me. Bring glory to your name. And then a miraculous event occurs. Only three times in the life of Jesus is this recorded. The first at his baptism, when the sky opened, the dove descended, and the voice said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. The second was at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transformed and the disciples with him, Peter among them said, Wow, I've never seen you like this before. This is your glory leaking out. Let's build three little mini churches. One for you, one for Moses, one for us, right? I mean, we're not really sure what was on his mind. And then the voice of heaven came and basically said in my vernacular language, shut up and listen to my kid. Be quiet, listen to Jesus. That was the voice. He didn't know what he was talking about. This was a sacred, holy moment. And the father silenced him and honored his son. And here a voice says, I have glorified your name, and our na- I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it. Now, we might be tempted to think all the ways that God has glorified his name. That's true. It would be a fruitful exercise, but not what Jesus would hope we would do or the Father would want us to do. What is he saying? How have I glorified my name through you, my son? Well, through his miraculous birth, through his miracles, through his consistent, godly, sinless life, through his sharing the gospel in all of the villages, all through Israel, through everything that was prophesied about Jesus that has been fulfilled, God has, God's name has been glorified. Only God could do this. But then he says, and I will glorify it. I will be glorified through your death. How can God possibly be glorified through the death of his sinless, unique, one and only Son, Jesus? Because it displays the plan of God, the purpose of God, the power of God, the willingness of God, All of those things and more, the love of God is displayed in Christ. Because when you and I look at the cross of Jesus, when we consider his suffering for us, we will hear his words to us, I did this for you. I am dying for you. I am laying down my life to ransom you. I am satisfying the judgment of God for you. I'm giving to you an entrance into my kingdom. I'm doing it for you. I'm adopting you into my family. I'm going to gift you with my Holy Spirit as a down payment of all the promises to come. I am going to walk with you. I will never lose you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always. You 
are mine because of the cross. That's how God is glorified. That's why Paul would write, if I glory in anything, I will glory in what? The cross. Because of what God did for me, as much as I don't deserve it and can never be worthy of it, I receive it with what? Gratitude. Thank you, God. That's the right response. So in this passage of Scripture, we see all of these things and we discover that Jesus feels the weight of his impending death. It's so normal, it's so anxious to be concerned for what is going to be happening to us and the word Jesus used is so powerful and strong, but this is what we discover, that we have in Jesus a Savior who understands all our agonies, all our sorrows, all our stresses, all our fears. Let me remind you of this great truth that the book of the Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews put for us in chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest being Jesus who intercedes for us, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he says, here's the application, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. We do not come to Jesus and say, I so apologize that I need grace. We have boldness to receive what it is that we need because he died to give it all to us and says, come and receive. You who are thirsty, come drink. You who are hungry, come eat. The scripture is full of the grace of God and says, come receive. Isn't that marvelous? And no one, not a God who will say, what, you again? Didn't you eat yesterday? Didn't I give you a drink last month? Like, what did you do with the grace I already gave you? No. No, come. Come. Do you understand the invitation? So what can you give for that? What do you do to buy that? How do you deserve it? And the answer is, you have nothing to bring. As the old song says, nothing do I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Nothing. He's not needy, as if you're going to supply. He doesn't ever run to the banister of heaven and look over this morning and say, oh, seekers Christians are still with me. Never. He doesn't need us. But he loves us, wants us, and goes to the cross to redeem us. So what we see in Jesus, the God-man, is that he is fully acquainted with all this emotion and terror and fear of what the impending judgment of God on him is going to be. But notice that personal monologue. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? And then he says, no, but this is the very hour for which I came. And then God breaks through and says, I have glorified your name and I'm going to glorify it. And in this passage, what we learn is that no one understood it, no one heard it but Jesus, and yet he says to the crowd, this wasn't for me, this was for you. It's a little confusing, isn't it? How can it be for them if no one heard it? Because when you read the passage, it says some thought it was a clap of thunder, indistinct, just noise. Others thought it was what? An angel that came and was talking to Jesus. Now, why were those the two choices? 
Well, I want to tell you it's been 400 years of silence between God and his people. There hasn't been a prophet from the close of the Old Testament until Jesus. And Jesus is in constant communion with the Father. And he's telling the people all the time, this is who I am, this is why I've come, this is what I've done. They don't really understand, they don't get it. They've got a view of the Messiah that's very different than who Jesus is. And they don't expect God to talk to them. So this is a principle that I want to peel out of this for us. It's powerful and it's applicable. We discover that we must want to hear God's voice in order to hear it. Now this is very true because when we preach, we say, oh God, open our hearts, open our ears. When you read the scripture, you would say, God, let me see you this morning in this. Teach me from your word. Let your spirit help me read it. As Spurgeon used to coach his people, he would say, when you're reading the scripture, keep Jesus with you. Watch his nail-pierced hand underline the words, for this is for you. You read it differently when Jesus is with you. We need to say, oh God, open my eyes, open my heart, let me see. If you expect never to make sense of the scripture, you probably never will. But if through the Spirit you are asking for insight, don't be surprised when it dances into your mind. They didn't understand, but what Jesus was saying was puzzling, and the disciples didn't even, it appears, to understand it. But earlier in chapter 16, there, there's also an indication, or in verse 16 of the same chapter, that they didn't really see what was going on until after Jesus had risen from the dead, and then they remembered and it made sense. Why? Because he also was among them for a number of days and taught them. Obviously, this is the section in John in which he would have said his disciples didn't understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and that he had done, these things had been done to him. And then Jesus adds a wider application of his looming death at the end of the section I want to share with you in verses 31 to the end of verse 34. Now is the time, he says, for the judgment of this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. And I want you to know from the next section, we'll get there, that the, that the crowds absolutely understood what he was saying. That being lifted up was not in coronation day. Being lifted up was in crucifixion, was in death. But there are three things that we should discover that the cross of Christ works beyond our personal salvation. The first one is this. That Satan is defeated at the cross. He's defeated. He's cast out. Well, there's so many personal applications of this. What does it mean? He's still a roaring lion, though, isn't he? Right. Doesn't he seek to who he may devour? Isn't he always stirring up strife? Doesn't he cause dissension within the ranks of God's people? All true. But you and I can resist him. He's lost his power. Maybe we haven't lost our fear of him. And there's some senses in which we need to understand this being and who he is and those who work in concert with him. I'm not making light of it. But I am saying, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You need not fear. 
Christ has conquered him. He doesn't own you. He can't control you. He doesn't have your life in his hand. Jesus alone has your life in his hand. You're his. So he is defeated, but he's not completely vanquished. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Very much like a king has put down uh, a coup, and the man who wanted to reign, he has been put out, but he isn't dead, and he still has an army, and he still creates skirmishes on the edges. That's really what's going on. But the accuser of the brethren has been silenced. Imagine this. Should there be a day, as there was in the book of Job, where Satan walking through the earth comes and God says to him, Have you considered my servant Ronald? There's no one quite like him. And the devil says, as he did to Job, Oh, skin for skin, you're protecting him. Just take the barrier away. And God limits what he does. He says, Well, you can take his things, but you can't touch him. Then he comes back and goes, he doesn't care about his things, but touch his skin and then we'll see a different man. And he allows it. You, you know the story I'm talking about in the book of Job. Well, here's the thing that Luther said about the devil. The thing you need to know about the devil, at least he's God's devil. What does it mean? He's on a leash. He has to ask permission. He cannot do what God doesn't allow. And when he comes and says, that Ronald, you know what? He's a mess of a man. I know him. And Jesus says, get behind me. I've forgiven him and chosen him and I love him. And you will not bring an accusation against my man. He's silent. The accuser of the brethren through the cross has no ability to accuse the church. Hallelujah, right? Now, are we worthy of that? Not always. Why? Because we've been complicit with things, haven't we? Ian prayed with us and said, Oh God, forgive us for presumptuous, aggressive, bold, bald sin. Yeah, we need that. But let me repeat, the accuser of the brethren is silenced. You know what, I've gone over time, but I'm going to give you two, two more, and then I'll quit. I promise. It says here, Jesus will draw all men to himself, and it's puzzling. If that comes out of the cross, that he's going to be lifted up and draw all men to himself, we usually think all as the collection of every individual. <coughs> Pardon me. But all may well mean here, all peoples which we see in Revelation chapter 7, I saw a crowd that no one could number from what? Every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue doing what? Giving praise to the Lamb, all men to Him. It means the door is wide open, whosoever will may come because He is the Savior in answer to the Greeks, not only of the Jews, but the Greeks as well. He is every man's Savior. Paul speaks on this, and we discover that as Jesus faces the cross, people are confused by it. They say to him, look, we know that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be eternal. Daniel tells us that. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man comes. It's a messianic title. But here's my question. He says, how then can you speak about being lifted up if you're going to be the forever reigning king? 
Seems like a good question, except what they don't understand is their view of that scripture isn't complete. But they want that scripture to be complete, don't they? Because as I've already said to you, what they want is a ruler among them who satisfies their needs, not a God above them who dies for their sin. Right? So in conclusion, what have you learned and discovered about Jesus as he sees the cross? Number one, you will see that Jesus resolutely chooses the cross. He chose the nails for you. You need to worship him. What kind of God dies for his people? The gods we know want people to serve them and then they'll benefit them. No, if Jesus doesn't serve you first, you have nothing to offer him. Here's the line. God wants nothing from you until he's given everything to you. And when he gives his everything to you, he doesn't want something from you. He wants you. It was for you, not your pocketbook, not your strength, not your potential. You. He was all in for you. And what he asks is you follow me. I bought you at this price. Be mine. Father, you've written these words for us through the pen of your servant John so that we might read these things and be challenged and be encouraged, be confronted and convicted, and then bow before you to both receive and continue the process of change. Transformation, Father, we confess is so difficult, but like rings of a tree, we need that sustaining grace of you for every ring that we accumulate in life. So would you remind us that trusting you when we did is not sufficient. We need to trust you for today. We need to follow after you. Encourage us, we pray. Continue the good work you've begun in us because we value the cross which is a foolishness to the world, but it is our glory because we see from it salvation. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.